Welcome once again to the Weird Sisters podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm the King's Helmet. Joining me is Liz. I'm the Constable's Bonnet. Our book this month is The Shepherd's Crown, which I kept misspelling due to having played too much Mass Effect. <laughs> I definitely wrote it down wrong in my like journal where I track all the books I've read for the year, so... Mm-hmm. It is a pen, so it's just like that now. Um, I was excited that we were getting another Tiffany Aching book. I mean, I've been pretty clear about my love for these ones. Um, but it's a short book, and so I was like, oh no, we're all like on the last one, and it's not even like a big old book that I'm going to have a lot of time with. So that was a little sad. Yeah, it's the last one. End of an era. The fact that we're like here, we're, we've reached the finish line, that's kind of amazing. We've not crossed it yet, so let's <laughs> dive on into the trivia. Originally published August 27th, 2015, and coming in at 72,000 words, The Shepherd's Crown is the 41st Discworld novel, and 5th in the Tiffany Aching series, or 11th in the Witches series. A reference to the myth of Langus flying too close to the sun is evoking the myth of Icarus, as well as the Irish airline Aer Lingus. The goat Mistopheles is named after the demon from Faust and at one point gets referred to with the phrase Mints of Darkness, combining the title Prince of Darkness as an epithet for Lucifer with either mincemeat or a way of walking with short, dainty steps. The line, things like goblins do matter, is believed to be a reference to the Black Lives Matter movement, which was beginning to gain cultural traction in 2013, as the book was being written. The Stephen Briggs audiobook lasts 7 hours and 49 minutes, with the Tony Robinson abridged version coming in at 4 hours and 42 minutes. The Shepherd's Crown won the Locus Award, the Fantastic Prize Award for being the best foreign novel, and the Dragon Award for best science fiction and fantasy work at DragonCon 2016. Our story begins in the ancient past, where a prehistoric sea creature passes away. It gets fossilized and, over time, becomes part of the land known as the Chalk, where it is uncovered many years later by a shepherd named Daniel Aking. We then join Daniel's descendant, Tiffany Aching, the Witch of the Chalk. While out on her witchy duties, Tiffany feels compelled to visit the Circle of Standing Stones, which she knows mark the entranceway to Fairyland, home of those most dangerous magical beings, the Elves. Tiffany remembers the time she rescued her little brother Wentworth from the Queen of the Elves, with the help of the wee free pixies known as the Mac McFeagle. Yeah, this book definitely just, like, is a bit of a run-through memory lane, as it feels. Yeah, definitely. Very much coming full circle to some of the big stuff, because, like, her first book was Confronting the Queen, and that was also just, like, one of the major uh, witches' books. Mm-hmm. I say one of the majors, if they're, like, they all are just kind of on equal footing. But, like, <laughs> definitely one of the most definitive ones. Yeah, I mean, the final scene in that one, like the climactic battle, which they do reference in this one, like is something that's burned very clearly into my brain about like the ending of one of these books. And some of them are like definitely pretty foggy and they're 41 books. There's a lot of endings to keep track of. So the fact that that one is so clear to me, I think says a lot about its strength and importance. Tiffany shortly spots a contingent of feagles at the stones. 
Their leader, Rob Anybody, brings Tiffany to chat with Jeannie, the matriarch of the clan. They talk about the strange feelings in the land, about Tiffany's boyfriend, Preston, and about how Tiffany is kind of at risk of overworking herself. Yeah, this book definitely feels like it's very much picking up where the last Tiffany book left off. And I kind of like that because she's obviously going uh, through a lot of growth and maturity as when she ages and as the books progress. And so it's nice to kind of harken back and acknowledge that, I think. Although it makes it really terrible for trying to read this without any prior knowledge about the earlier books. Yeah, this is not one that you could just jump on in on. Yeah, no. <laughs> Elsewhere, we meet Jeffrey Swivel, the son of an ill-tempered and anti-intellectual nobleman. After refusing to participate in his father's fox hunt, Jeffrey leaves home, accompanied by his goat, Mephistopheles. Jeffrey doesn't know where to go, but something points him towards Lanker, a country known for its witches. Jeffrey doesn't necessarily get, like, a ton of time in this book. It's a pretty short book, so I, uh, a gripe I have about it in general is it feels like it's moving very quickly. But I do like the fact that Jeffrey kind of seems Tamir-esque from Equal Rights. Yeah, it just feels very, like, acknowledging where the series has been in this final book and, like, being like, what would the inverse of that feel like, you know? Where Esk wanted wanted to be a girl, like, going into a male-dominated industry, Jeffrey mm -hmm. is assigned male at birth, at least. We'll talk a little mm -hmm. later. And very much wants to embrace a more feminine outlook. Yeah, and I think he reflects a lot about what the series is kind of going for, and especially, like, themes in this book about embracing change and... Uh, how the world progresses and things are different and how we should embrace that. And how about, you know, like love is important and taking care of things is important. And sometimes you will have to fight to take care of the things you love and things that should be protected. But generally you can kind of achieve the same ends by just being a good, kind-hearted, soft-spoken person. In Lanker, we join the greatest witch of the Discworld, Granny Weatherwax, as she goes about performing her own acts of witchcraft, giving advice and medical aid to those who need it. Not long after Granny returns to her cottage, she realizes something important. Yeah, I probably should have been able to see what was coming here, and I think I was just in denial and didn't want to. <laughs> The next day, Granny cleans up and leaves a note that all of her belongings, and implicitly her standing as the technically not leader of all witches, should go to Tiffany Aching. With her affairs in order, Granny says goodbye to her pet cat, Yu, then gets her final visit with the Incarnation of Death. He says that a part of her will linger in the world for a little while longer, even as he leads the rest of her to the beyond. Definitely, like, something that pulled at my heartstrings. It's just like, I already had a lot of feelings going into this book about, you know, the end of Discworld. And then that, just on top of it, was a little much for me to handle at the moment. Granny Weatherwax has been here basically since the beginning. And it definitely feels like a acknowledgement of the series coming to an end that she's gone. Yeah, especially because she feels untouchable and like immortal because of that it felt like she would always just be around and be granny weatherwax and then you know that's 
not how things work in real life. Uh, there's a brief sequence here of a bunch of people learning that Granny Weatherax has passed away, including Escarina and her unnamed son, two of the many characters who are just like appear briefly and don't really come back in a meaningful way. <laughs> yeah, like I said earlier, this book feels like it's kind of uh, highlight reel of the series in general, and this scene is definitely one of the sections where that feels like it's the case. Back on the chalk, Tiffany is helping a new mother give birth to triplets, when who should arrive but you, the cat? After reminding the mother not to neglect the girl in favor of the two boys, Tiffany takes her broomstick to Granny Weatherwax's cottage. There, she meets Granny's best friend, Nanny Og, and the two of them give Granny a modest burial in the woods. Soon enough, people arrive from across the disc to pay their respects. Notable among these is Archchancellor Ridkali, the de facto leader of wizards and an old flame of Granny's. Yeah, he pops into the book very briefly and disappears just as quickly, but I at least appreciate the acknowledgement of the, the fact that they did have a long-standing relationship, because we get to spend the rest of the book with Nanny and Tiffany and the other witches and get to see the after-effects of Granny's death on them. But, like, we don't necessarily get to see that with Ridcoli because he's all the way in Ankh-Morpork. And so this one scene where he's just so compelled by the news of Granny's death that he has to go and he has to see her and get whatever closure he can. I don't know. That's a big deal, I think. Meanwhile, in Fairyland, an ambitious elf named Peasblossom has helped capture a goblin from the Discworld and brought him to the Queen. The goblin, who introduces himself as Of the Lathe the Swarf, tells the Queen about the new level of acceptance goblins have been enjoying in the human-centric disc society, and how the new railroads mean that the mortal realm is more dangerous than ever for the elves. Yeah, like, the Discworld has changed a lot since we got to see them last in the big fight with the witches. So, it's, I think, a worthwhile exploration of the question of how would they adapt to this new world. Yeah, and their answer is that they don't, because as was discussed back in Lords and Ladies, the elves being immortal means that they are kind of incapable of adaptation and evolution. Yeah, they're just kind of perpetually stuck in the way that they have always been. I think that comes back to the whole idea about change that I think this book wants to talk about. And the fact that, you know, the villains of the book are so incapable and so spiteful of somebody trying to change, you know. Back on the disc, Tiffany is struggling to manage being the official witch for both the chalk and for Lanker. She enjoys a moment of comfort with her parents, and her father gives her a family heirloom the fossil that Daniel Aking found so many years ago. I really like this as, like, character trait thing. Like, I live pretty close to the Rocky Mountains, so I basically have grown up with the stories of people finding fossils of these deep-sea creatures, like, my entire life. And so, I don't know, it speaks, I think, especially to the sense of, like, knowing where home is in a way that is deeper than you can really, like, articulate, but is so, like, Symbolically simple. When Tiffany next goes to Lanker, she has an encounter with another witch, Mrs. Earwig, who tries to get Tiffany to admit that it's too hard to fill Granny Weatherwax's boots. Tiffany holds her ground against the older witch and gets her to back off. Yeah, this is 
<laughs> Mrs. Earwig is a lot. I appreciate that this is basically just the only scene because I was pretty worried that she was going to be just a perpetual problem in this book. But I think it says a lot about how the witches work. The fact that she makes her position known, she tries to fight Tiffany on this, and then when that interaction is over, she's kind of done with it. Like, she obviously still has some faint feelings about it, but it's not just this very prolonged conflict throughout the book. The Queen of the Elves and a retinue of her soldiers investigate the mortal realm and its trains, and of the lathe the swarf hits them with handfuls of iron filings. When they retreat, Peasblossom stages a coup, stripping the queen of both her magical glamour and her wings. Yeah, this book, like, really goes full force with the, like, horror in the elves, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel like less so than Lords and Ladies, to be honest, but I think that this is the natural place to go with the Queen of the Elves as a character. Yeah, totally. We've had her as an antagonist multiple times now, and yeah, she's compelling and dangerous and everything, but like, part of this whole story is very much about things changing, and it's cool that uh, we're able to find some nuance within her, who was very much a fairly simple character. Yeah, she was just magic and scary and bad, but here I appreciate that the book asks the question of what would two very hard losses do to you as a person in power and especially among the elves who are so cutthroat and unforgiving and the queen is a great character to explore that and how people can try to grow despite their backgrounds soon enough who should knock on the door to granny weatherwax's old cottage but jeffrey who wants to learn the ways of witchcraft and of helping people jeffrey has shown a knack for peacefully resolving arguments and mephistopheles is a very impressive goat so tiffany agrees to take him under her wing there's some discussion here about jeffrey's gender specifically and he says that he's never thought of himself as a man which could be a nod to non-binary representation, but the rest of the characters still treat him as male, so it's difficult to be certain about what the story is saying with him. Yeah, I definitely think the book is saying something about Jeffrey, like, fairly explicitly, but I think the world around Jeffrey kind of reflects this either kind of antiquated or very rural experience of people who differ from what we expect of a normal cisgender heterosexual person by not necessarily having the words or tools to change how they treat or address that person. And so it's like, yeah, that's blah, blah, blah. They were a boy, but now they're a girl. And so we call them whatever. And it's like, that feels really wrong to us nowadays because we have so much more knowledge about how to treat transgender people. But it definitely kind of, you know, reflects a sentiment that still does kind of exist in parts of the world and with some groups of people. The whole story is full of kind of an antiquated approach to gender roles, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's partially a consequence, especially when you build gendered institutions, and there's some air quotes around institutions there, like the witches, where every witch has been a woman or whatever. That feels a little restrictive, and if you try to challenge it at all, then you have to answer a whole lot of questions with it, which I think this book kind of tries to do and misses on a little bit. But it's definitely 
very concerned with understanding the gender like dynamics of a small town i think yeah i would have liked if jeffrey had just turned out to be a trans girl but like Mm -hmm. so it goes yeah but i definitely think like reading jeffrey as non-binary and just using he him pronouns is a very very accurate reading of this book and you know how the characters in the book i think don't necessarily understand how to do that but i think that's kind of probably what pratchett was going for if i could speculate a little bit as jeffrey is doing witchy tasks he talks with a bunch of retired men and introduces them to the idea of having a shed a place where they can go and do little projects of their own outside of the house with mephistopheles in tow Jeffrey proves quite capable of aiding the townspeople, and the Fiegels approve of him, so Tiffany decides that he should inherit Granny Weatherwax's broomstick. Two things here. The first one is I think it's like I think it's a bit of foreshadowing, the fact that Tiffany gives Jeffrey Granny's broomstick, because I think it's a little bit of her learning to let go of everything that she's expected to hold. And part of it is a huge sense of duty of following granny and i think part of it is trying to fill her shoes very literally in this book and not necessarily understand not necessarily understanding how to do that because she's such a different person and is so deeply connected to her home in the chalk that she struggles with understanding and being able to juggle the chalk and linker and everything that comes with taking care of both of those places The other thing is, I think this book is kind of acknowledging the fact that the thing that kind of stuck out in my mind is how people of color or who are not cisgender, who are not heterosexual, or women in general, can kind of feel unseen and misunderstood by people in positions of power like doctors, because those, the people who are typically in those positions, um, who are typically white or typically male as we tend to see them don't understand the con the don't understand the complexities of belonging to those groups and so when they try to say something they aren't necessarily being heard in the way that they are trying to be heard i think jeffrey is kind of illustrating that fact with these old men is offering them a way to open up with somebody that they identify with in a way that is not even totally clear to anybody I think that they can't with the female witches that they've interacted with so far like Tiffany and Granny I don't think this is like a sub theme in the book or anything I just feel like it's kind of a gentle acknowledgement of the fact that just kind of how we are hardwired we are better able to recognize and sympathize with people who share a similar background with us, which is a good case for making sure that people of every sort of background are able to get into those positions where they can help people because they'll be able to understand what those people need better than anybody else. It's my very long-winded spiel, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) As Tiffany and Jeffrey head to Ankh-Mor Pork to get the broomstick repaired, and Tiffany visits Preston at his apprenticeship, Peas Blossom declares himself the new king of the elves. One of his subjects raises the concern about their old king, but Peas Blossom is too eager for his new war on the mortal world to care about that. 
When Tiffany returns to the chalk, she discovers that the Fiegels have found the former Queen of the Elves, who has been kicked out of Fairyland. Without her title, she reveals that her name is Nightshade. The Fiegels are eager to kill their former monarch, but Tiffany decides to take responsibility for her. It's uh, really revealing that Tiffany chooses to be compassionate here, even though, you know, it's a really hard decision to make given the context of that situation. And says a lot about the person she's trying to be. I also kind of wanted them to make a joke about how one of the species of nightshade is tomatoes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's like that should have been just a little tidbit in there, like somebody gets really confused by her name. Tiffany brings Nightshade along on her witch duties, teaching the elf about how mortals think and care for each other. It's difficult at first, because elves tend to view non-elves as toys for their sadistic whimsy, but Nightshade eventually comes to think of Tiffany as a friend, and warns her about Peas Blossom. It's like, it's basically impossible to change without your situation changing, so... Like, how could Nightshade possibly try to become a better person if she's just stuck around the elves who are very much set in their ways? But this is showing that the problem is not elves as, like, an individual creature. The problem is elves as a culture, as a society, is incapable of trying to grow, you know? And if they can be set in the right conditions, they're just as capable of change as anybody else. Three of the elves kidnap the infant girl that Tiffany had delivered earlier in the story, which fills the young witch with such fury that she magically kills them. She later regrets doing so, but Nenny Og assures Tiffany that it needed to be done. Something that the books have reiterated time and time again with the witches is that they're put in a difficult position between light and dark, life and death, you know? Because of their power... They have to consider and do things that are really troubling for the normal people around them. And we've seen a lot where the witches are caring for people who are dying or who have died. And the struggles of trying to do that because, you know, death carries a lot of weight with it. And I think this is the inverse of it where Tiffany is the one responsible for that death and when that might sometimes be necessary, as Nanny makes the case. Also, going back to our discussion of raising steam, we didn't like how Moist von Litvig in that book killed the bandit guys, right? Kind of, you already answered this about this. It is difficult deciding how I feel about Tiffany killing, especially since it's not really given a lot of narrative focus and weight in the moment. It's a fairly short scene, but then again, like, I imagine that kind of reflects Tiffany's emotional state at the time. It's just like, it is just a thing that has to happen. Yeah, and I think with Tiffany, part of the reason is it's so difficult is because when her books start, she's like literally a small child. So... We very much see her in a way... We can never kind of unsee her as being a child, I think. That part of her is always in our, the backs of our minds when we think of the things she's going through. And I think that this book in general moves very quickly through a lot of ideas. And so I do think that it's kind of skimmed over a little bit the weight that this decision has on her. And the fact 
that this would bring a lot of grief for her probably and that would be lingering grief and that it's a complicated issue that even if it's the right thing doesn't necessarily lessen that weight. In search of a way to resolve the issue without violence, Tiffany finds the entrance to the pocket universe where the true King of the Elves lives. He does not agree to help her, and is indifferent to them killing his subjects, being primarily concerned with his own boredom. After Tiffany leaves, she has the Feagles build the king a shed of his own. This entire scene is, like, wild and unexpected. Yeah, it's like, uh, if you ever saw the movie Labyrinth, I think it's like the encounter with David Bowie's Goblin King just, like, turned up to smelly. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> Definitely came out of left field for me, and then it was like burned into my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have met the King of the Elves before, back in Lords and Ladies. Mm -hmm. And I don't recall him being described quite so graphically in that one. No, I don't think so. I think that the references to his junk were a little bit more oblique, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because there was obviously, like, I can't remember what they're calling it, but the mound or whatever that they are trying to find him. Yeah, the long man. Oh, yeah, the long man. Like, that was pretty clear in those books, in Lords and Ladies. So, like, that one I was, like, ready for. The rest of it was a no. Since fighting seems to be inevitable, Tiffany gathers a small army of witches to help defeat the elves. They have a war council in Lenker Castle, hosted by Queen Magrat, who has some of the most experience with elves. To help the witches understand the threat, Tiffany has Nightshade show off her partially restored glamour, which melts the confidence that one needs for witchcraft, although Mrs. Earwig's ego is too powerful for even an elf to overcome. <laughs> very funny choice. I love it. I also really like that Magrat has very much like come into her own. Like she's a very confident character in this book, which is such a change from her being perpetually described as a wet hen in the early witches books. Yeah, absolutely. I think that part of that is just due to her now having multiple children. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'll definitely change you as a person. <laughs> and I do also enjoy the scene that she has with, with Letitia, the Baroness of the Chalk, who demonstrated magical aptitude in the previous Tiffany book and was disappointed that she couldn't be both a witch and a Baroness. And Magrat was just like, I'm a witch and a queen. So, you know, you can have it all. <laughs> yeah, it's a really nice acknowledgement, especially since, you know, Letitia's hesitancy in the previous book is pretty clear about becoming a witch and even though she wants it like that's kind of complicated but Margaret's like no it's not that complicated like you can do both. That night Tiffany has a dream conversation with the creature that became the shepherd's crown the fossil and that renews her connection to the land giving her the strength to lead the other witches into battle. The Knack McFeagle join in the fighting and the retired gentlemen that Jeffrey spoke with use iron fillings from their sheds to help wound the elves. Eventually, Nightshade comes face to face with Peas Blossom, who kills her. Yeah, it's a real brief confrontation. Yeah. Woof. Yeah, and it's tragic, and it's the scene keeps going because there's just not time to really, like, sit and ponder Nightshade, Nightshade's death here. I like the running theme that Tiffany's greatest power is her connection to her home, you know? And that, that will always be be 
the thing that makes her distinctly the kind of what she is. And what inspires that connection in her, I think, is, like, different in every book, if I remember right. But I think it's a really good choice for her as a character and just a really powerful, interesting one in general. Incandescent with fury, Tiffany summons up that power of the land to bind the elves and summon the king. Grateful for the shed, he shows her respect, killing Peas Blossom and returning with the remaining elves to Fairyland. With that done, Tiffany breaks the connection between their realm and the Discworld. It's implied that just like there is still like some amount of connection with the two realms. I got the impression that the narrative was setting up, at least, that Tiffany was basically just, like, making it so the elves couldn't come to the disc anymore. Yeah, I I think that's a good way to interpret it, because it, the characters talk about later, though, like, what will they do the next time the elves come back? But it definitely feels like Tiffany has obscured the doorway a little bit. Like, there is a line about the, the connection snapping. Mm-hmm, yeah. The morning after the battle, Tiffany and the other witches gather to discuss the future, and Tiffany assigns Geoffrey to look after Granny Weatherwax's cottage while she remains on the chalk, and to no small amazement, the rest of the witches, even Mrs. Earwig, agree. Yeah, I think this is a big culmination of Tiffany's character arc in general, which is learning to let go a little bit of her need to take care of things and kind of, by an extent, control them, and... You know, that was something that the last book, I think, dealt with a lot of. She is constantly carrying so much weight by by trying to be a good witch to the people of the chalk and reaching a conclusion in this book where she can just let go of some of that burden and put it in the hands of somebody that she trusts. You know, that feels like a very good resolution for her. In the epilogue, Tiffany speaks with a carpenter and builds herself a new mobile cottage out of the remains of her grandmother's old shepherding hut. With that done, you the cat lets her know that both Granny Egging and Granny Weatherwax will always be there for her. And also, she gets to see just like a little bit of Granny Weatherwax and Egging walking in the woods, chatting. Yeah, it, it feels like a real acknowledgement of Granny Egging's not position as a witch but kind of and is a really good representation of the fact that tiffany will always be connected to the people that shaped her regardless of whether or not they are alive both in a literal sense in the case of this book and in the metaphorical one where she has been shaped very deeply by these people and they will always be with her even if it's not in a very physical sense so that was the shepherd's crown what did you think I, in general, really liked the book. I think it's got some weak spots where in some of the other books we've talked about, they kind of feel like they just have too many ideas. This one kind of feels like it has enough ideas, but just not enough time to flesh them out. And like, it's a very short book. So it definitely kind of feels like there's just sections of development and rest between climactic moments just missing. And I'm not exactly like, entirely sure on the timing of when this is written versus Pratchett's diagnosis and then death but it definitely feels like it's just a little unfinished which I don't necessarily know if I am like entirely upset about like I still like it I still think it's a book that has themes that work but I wish there was more 
And I think that's pretty meaningful of the series in general. Yeah, it's like we have had that criticism of plenty of the other books. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, yeah, and there's only so much time. And also just it is easy to criticize like from our position, right? It's like, yeah, it's much easier to suggest improvements on a thing than it is to create something from whole cloth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. General discussion points. Uh, Peas Blossom is kind of just nothing. He's a cipher for the elves want to overthrow the queen and go raiding the mortal realm. I, I think you're very uh, on the money with that. He's very shallow. I was thinking about ways for him to be more interesting. And what I came up with, maybe too elaborate, but hear me out. What if he had been part of the elf assault back in lords and ladies then got trapped in the mortal realm and couldn't make it back to fairyland until granny weatherwax passing away weakened the barrier or whatever and that when he did get back he found out that his queen was still unwilling to go after the mortals and then he would feel like he'd been betrayed and would have a real motive for the coup. Yeah, because I, I can't even tell you if Peace Blossom was in any of the other books with the elves, but he feels just like he pops out of nowhere and we need a bad guy we can hate. And so it's him and that kind of feels like that's it. <laughs> any sort of depth would be phenomenal for him i think and i think your idea is like provides so much complexity where he's had all this time in the mortal realm especially with the railroads becoming a thing that he may might like want to fight against the mortal realm in order to hold on to what power the elves have also on the subject of the queen i liked nightshade as a character i'm a big sucker for non-human entities learning to reconcile their own perspectives with that of humans and i like how tiffany helps her understand friendship also it, it was hilarious to me how nightshade reacted to that old lady calling her a good girl for being kind to her because it read a little bit like nightshade had discovered a praise kink <laughs> <laughs> I love that subtext. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's like, I think the book, like the book clearly has a lot of sympathy for Nightshade. So I like her. And I think this world in general is always supportive of characters who want to change for the better. And that definitely extends to Nightshade. So yeah, I kind of wish we had a little bit more time with her again, connected to my gripe about this book where it just feels like it was short and it was missing stuff. And but like, I do really like what we got of her. On the subject of stuff being short and some things missing, uh, there's a scene with the witch teacher, Miss Tick, where she helps two girls, Becky and Nancy, learn some of the craft. And I would have enjoyed it if they had come back in a more meaningful way, especially during the finale. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe someday I'll write a fanfic or something about like maybe them competing in witchcraft and eventually falling in love <laughs> because that's the sort of person I am. <laughs> yeah, I love love it but yeah they're very much introduced and i thought it was gonna be like oh now tiffany has to juggle training two other witches on top of everything else she's got going on but no they do just kind of disappear i do think they're technically at the battle at the end but i'm not entirely sure about that any sort of reason for them to come back into the narrative would have been great especially the juxtaposition of having seen tiffany once be in that position and now seeing two other young girls having to go through that same thing and what her perspective on that would be now yeah and i also just feel like one thing that i enjoy about how the discworld plots weave into each other is when 
uh, one character shows up in a different character's story. It's always fun seeing how the different protagonists like look at each other. Mm-hmm. And we never get to see Tiffany aching from anybody else's perspective. Yeah, especially since, like, Tiffany's definitely, like, a very specific kind of person. She's a little uppity, she's young, she's a witch, you know, all of those will inspire certain reactions out of people. And we are so, like, deeply in her thoughts in her books that it would be really interesting to see what would that all feel like from somebody who is not with her every thought, you know? Yeah. So for each book, I like to try and figure out a thesis statement. This one, I would say that it's, there is no change without loss, and yet with loss comes new opportunities for growth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of little ways in which that is woven through the narrative. One scene where Tiffany's brother Wentworth doesn't want to take over the family tradition of being a shepherd. He wants to go work on the new railroads. Yeah, this book is, I think, very clearly concerned with the idea of change and growth. And, you know, it's hard to untangle its place as the last Discworld book from all of the ideas it presents. But it feels in a way very hopeful to me about that like it's obviously very sad that we're finishing the series like this has been a part of our lives for a while now and the fact that new good things will come even though it's coming to an end is the thing that's kind of getting me through my feelings about it right now I think (laughs) so as always you can if you like the show you can share it on social media feel free to join us in our discord server and everything and of course big thank you to willow carter for our theme music to you liz for joining me yeah thanks for having me and all of our listeners and special thanks to the randomly selected patreon supporter for this month Uh, we're shouting out ian thanks ian and we like to wrap up each episode with the reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote granny soap was like her advice Strong and sharp, and it stung a bit at the time, but it worked. We're going to come back for one last installment just to wrap up the series, give a little bit of a retrospective, and so join us then. The turtle turtle moves. moves.